pray. Lord, we are ever grateful when we have the opportunity to come and put ourselves, to rank ourselves under you by placing ourselves beneath the word of God. It is our authority, and it is the revealed path to life, not just eternal life, but life now, life that is abundant in Jesus, life that is satisfied and thankful, life that is full of joy, even in our disappointments and pain. And so, Father, we turn to your word day by day, and we gather to turn to your word week by week because we love to hear you speak. So speak to us, Lord. And as you speak, give us ears to hear and hearts that desire to see clearly. Bring the spiritual x-ray machine to bear on our hearts. And may we, Father, identify areas where we need to change and pursue that change by your grace, by your spirit, and by your word. Lord, these things we ask so that Jesus Christ would be praised in us. And so we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. And you can be seated. We are still in the book of Colossians this morning. Today we continue the series of messages entitled New Attitudes for old relationships. And so far, we've studied some of what Scripture teaches about a wife's role in the home, as well as the husband's role. Two messages on that, if you missed it. And now we come to the parent's role in relationship to their children. So if you haven't put your seatbelt on yet, parents, just get ready. Just remember, this is from the Lord. Most of this is from the Lord. And... Um, and so be gentle. Okay, of course, when Paul wrote the two letters which speak most directly about these things, about husbands and wives and parents and children, etc., much of what he says in those two letters or said in those two letters was written to those who had heard about it before. Many, no doubt, were already married when the testimony of Christ had already, uh, before the testimony of Christ had arrived in their respective towns. Now, I've been unclear so far, so let me clarify it. What I mean to say is that so many of these people in Ephesus and Colossae, they were all first-generation believers. And so they were coming out of paganism. They were coming out of paganism's idea of how to be a husband and how to be a father and how to be a wife and how to be a mother and when Paul came on the scene, or Paul's protégés, after they embraced the gospel and its extended teaching, they brought it to their hometowns, and this was new. This was new to them. And of course, there would have been many among them who were, who were married and who were having children. Maybe they weren't married, but they were having children together. Wives, husbands... Children, these, we might say, were the old relationships. That is, they were relationships that had been established before the gospel arrived. When it came, however, those who believed, those who believed the gospel experienced significant, significant change. 
The relationships were brought under the authority of the scriptures. And the sweet fruit that was born had a profoundly positive effect upon their lives. As new believers, they found within their hearts new attitudes for these relationships. These old relationships, now there were new attitudes and and new understanding of how to pursue those relationships. Colossians 3 and Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 are, are portions of scripture that are intensely practical and always met with tremendous interest. That's especially true on the part of young families launching into the long and challenging season known as parenthood. Does God have a word for parents as to how to train our children? I hope so, because we've got a ton of young families here who need this kind of instruction. And praise the Lord and the Kirk family, we are just about done. (laughs) And we'll be called upon with the grandbabies, I'm sure. This is an important question. Does the word of God speak to the issues relative to parents and their children? Because everybody else has an opinion for how to run your home. There's no shortage of family management philosophies. I mean, go to any large bookstore, Christian or otherwise, and you'll find an entire section devoted to how to raise your kids and how to stay married in the process. The sad irony about it, however, is that while everybody seems to have a philosophy of child training, too few parents do it well, at least from God's eyes. There are probably at least a few reasons for that. First of all, I believe some parents really struggle because circumstances are beyond their control. And what I mean by that is there are so many moms and dads in our day because of a lack of commitment to marriage, etc. Many moms in our day have been abandoned by their husbands and have, they just kind of have to do the whole thing by themselves. It's enormously difficult. It's enormously difficult, and the church needs to rally around such women and render assistance in a variety of ways, whatever the need may be. Raising children isn't child's play. It takes hard work. It's personal sacrifice. Lots of prayer is required, a determination to obey the word of God. It speaks about family. God's word speaks everything we need to know about family. And, and frankly, if you're going to raise a family, you just need to know it's, it's a messy business. It's messy, it's disorganized, it's often frustrating. Am I encouraging you yet? This, this is just reality, isn't it? There is a one or two amens, but uh, maybe the rest of you moms are afraid to say it. And frankly, even when you're doing a pretty good job, even when you're striving to please the Lord, it it often feels like you're failing. If you're unwilling to take on that kind of challenge, then you probably are not going to do a very good job raising your children in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. You may be able to feed them and clothe them and get them out of the house at 18. This This is the goal. This is the goal, right? Our ultimate goal is, listen carefully, and this is really important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but our ultimate goal should not be to get your children saved. You can't do that. 
You can't save them. There's no magic method that will ensure that, that all of your kids or any of your kids will repent and believe. The Christian parent's goal is to raise their kids God's way and then trust the Lord for their salvation. Second, I think too many couples fail to fulfill their calling as parents because they've traded the word of God for worldly wisdom and pop psychology. Instead of teaching our kids that truth matters and life is sacred and hard work is expected and that they will be held accountable for their behavior, we now teach them that there's no truth, life is meaningless, and that hard work is unnecessary. And when something goes wrong in their lives, they have been trained to believe that it's not their fault. They're simply victims of circumstances or the, the opposition of oppressive societal forces. That's more the claim today. Is it any wonder that 10 million children in America are taking at least one psychiatric drug? This kind of humanistic gobbledygook doesn't work if our goal is to raise children who put their hope in God. And to the degree that parents apply godless teaching about this, this disorder or that syndrome or some other dysfunction with which your child has been labeled, to that degree they will fail as Christian parents. The problem is not outside of you. The problem is inside. So what does the Bible have to say about how parents should raise their children. Well, to be honest, compared to what you find in popular bookstores, not very much. The Bible doesn't directly speak about parenting in, in very many places. I mean, there's over a thousand pages in the Bible, but there's very few statements directly addressing parenting. That's the bad news. The good news is, actually, there isn't any bad news. The good news is, Everything that God has given us relative to how we should train our children and raise them up in the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, all of it is contained in his word. All of it is contained in the Bible. Nothing is missing. Now, there are many scriptures throughout the Old Testament and New Testament that offer inspired counsel on how to raise our kids. But the Apostle Paul boils it down to one sentence. One sentence that contains two imperatives. The first is negative, and the second is positive. Ephesians gives us both, but we are studying the book of Colossians, so I'm going to start there to look at the first imperative, and then we'll flip back to Ephesians to find the second. And let's look at both of these texts. Colossians Chapter 3, verse 21, and you don't have to stand. We're only going to look at two verses. Verse 21 of Colossians 3. Now, let me just run up to this, starting with verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this pleases the Lord. Again, that's the goal. In verse 21, here we go. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And we can flip back just a few pages to Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right, etc. And then verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture 
or discipline and instruction of the Lord. So those are our two texts. Again, these are parallel passages. Paul wrote both of these letters apparently from the same jail cell at the same time. He has similar concerns for both churches. Now this morning, all I want to do is explain the meaning of these two imperatives and then spend the rest of our time thinking about the practical implications. And so we could summarize all of this in one statement. Do not exasperate your children. Parents, here is your new attitude. Somehow, by the Spirit, you have to change so that you do not exasperate your children. And this is what the text says, do not exasperate your children, or do not, um, verse 20, uh, fathers, do not provoke your children, is the way it reads in the ESV. The word here for fathers, before we begin unloading on them, we need to understand that this is not fathers exclusively, we need to understand that Paul is speaking to both parents, both father and mother. We know that because of what we discover in the immediate context. In verse 20 of Colossians 3, Paul tells children to obey their parents. It's true that dad will be the one primarily held accountable before God for the condition of their children, but it's beyond obvious, isn't it, that moms often have the greater spiritual influence over the children because they typically spend more time with them. They spend a lot of time raising their children. And some moms spend all of their time raising their children. The word fathers does not exclude the enormous and profitable contribution and necessary contribution of mothers. And I don't think that can be overstated. Rather, it includes them in the same way the word brothers or brethren is used in Scripture to include Christians, all Christians, in other passages. So Paul is speaking to parents here, just as he refers to them in verse 20. Now, what does Paul say to parents? He says, do not provoke them to anger. This is the first imperative. Do not provoke. The word provoke here suggests... And you're probably not going to be able to write this down, and I don't have it for you in your notes. But just listen, I'll, I'll repeat it twice. What does Paul mean when he says provoke? Let me suggest to you that it is a repeated, ongoing pattern of treatment that gradually builds up a deep-seated anger and resentment that boils over into outward hostility. Let me say it again. This is, this is we were talking about teenage rebellion. It is a repeated, ongoing pattern of treatment in the home that gradually builds up a deep-seated anger and resentment that boils over into outward hostility. It means to tempt them to seize with resentment and irritation, discouragement. I think that really gets to the heart of the issue. Yes, children are required to obey their parents, but parents are not to assume that this gives them a totalitarian authority over their children. Paul was trying to lead believing moms and dads away from the tyrannical style of parenting so common under Roman law of that day. On the other hand, he would have us break free of the excessive permissiveness 
as patterned in so many American homes today. We are not to be harsh with them. We are not to be too loose with them. Either direction can provoke our children, and there's 10,000 different ways to do it. So we are told not to lead our children in such a way that that leads them to become embittered against their parents. Now, someone might ask, how can I tell, how can I tell if the way I am parenting is inadvertently provoking my children to resentment and anger? How do I know? I mean, if I wanted to do a self-diagnosis today when I get home, how would I know? Well, that's a really good question. And Paul kind of gives us a clue at the end of this verse. Notice he says, fathers, do not provoke your children. And then the next phrase, lest they become discouraged. Lest they become discouraged. The word for discouraged here means to become dispirited, disheartened, and to feel like giving up. I remember when I was a young dad in my 30s, I had turned 30, believe it or not, just shortly before I came to Calvary Bible Church. That was a lifetime ago, almost. Well, for some of you, it's many lifetimes ago. On one occasion, I noticed that one of my kids, my oldest, Josh, seemed down most of the time. And one of the men in the church noticed that something was out of kilter and invited me out to lunch. I told him my oldest son seemed a little bit withdrawn, and I remember I kind of gave him some, some details about what I was seeing in Josh's life, and I was expecting him to give me counsel on how to fix Josh. But here's what he said. I'll never forget it. He said, you know, I have found that when something is going wrong in my family, the root cause is that something is wrong with me. And I remember, I know exactly where the restaurant was. I remember exactly how I was feeling when I walked out of that restaurant. I was mad. So I thought, that is not why I came. And you know what? I have never forgotten that conversation. And, and it probably took a few days for the Lord to soften my heart to realize that maybe the problem is me. That was not the kind of counsel I expected, but, but it's kind of counsel that I needed and so a week or so later, I may have told you the story before, my son and I were driving from our home over to, you know, where Best Buy Albertsons is over here off the highway. And we got to that traffic light and we were just sitting there and I looked over at him and I said, um, I said, Josh, can I ask you a question? And uh, I said, have I done anything to discourage you or provoke you to withdraw? I just feel like there's something between us. And I'll never forget his answer. He said, well, Dad, I, I just wish you didn't yell at me all the time. That was hard to hear. Because I knew as soon as he said it that it was true. I tell you, it broke my heart. I was provoking him to bitterness, to anger, to withdrawal. He wouldn't have been able to attach any of those words to it. He's probably 10 years old. But when I asked, he, he hit the spot perfectly. Let me caution you. If you're going to ask that kind of question, you better go into that conversation with a resolve to listen and 
receive what your child is saying to you, or otherwise it will make matters worse. I guarantee it. Christian parents are called to serve their families as the visible manifestation of the invisible Christ. We are to make the glory of God visible in the world. We exist to image forth the glory of God. And if that's true with us individually, it's certainly true with Christian families. If we are to fulfill that calling, we must fulfill it first of all in the home. That's why if you're going to be an elder, one of the qualifications is you've got to manage your home. In verse 20, the high call of the Christian child is to live in obedience to the parents. He is to willingly listen under. This is what the word means, to submit. To listen under. It's it's a military term. Or to rank himself under his parents so that the world will take notice and give glory to God. On the other hand, Christian parents are to likewise lead their children in such a way that protects them from temptation that may result from mom and dad's active or passive sin in the home. Such sin, Paul suggests, will result in the the discouragement, the frustration, and rebellion of their children. So mom and dad, this this is a serious issue to the Apostle Paul. And frankly, I intended to do two messages on this, one negative and one positive, but we already had six weeks of parenting. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to Damon's teaching on that. But mom and dad, this is a serious issue. If we are not careful about how we relate to our children, we may give heed to the next verse inadvertently, the next word, inadvertently. We may, we may inadvertently lead them into temptation. I hope none of us does that intentionally. But we may inadvertently lead them directly into temptation that will bear the fruit of bitterness and ultimately perhaps a denial of the faith which is exactly what Satan is striving to achieve in your home. So serious is this that Jesus once said, and listen carefully, I said there wasn't many passages that spoke directly to parent-children. This one doesn't speak directly, doesn't mention children, doesn't mention the parent-child relationship, but it applies. Listen, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Jesus is making a comparison. What is worse? What is worse? Is it worse? to cause a little one to stumble, or is it worse to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the heart of the sea? And Jesus is saying, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea. That's how precious your children are to God. The word for stumble here, in Jesus' words, Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble is scandalizo, from which we get our word, you can probably guess, scandal, or to scandalize. 
as a verb. As parents, you may be able to keep a lid on the sin of your home so well that no one else really knows what's going on in it, but the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, and he is scandalized when we provoke our children to anger. So what does it look like when a parent scandalizes his or her children? Or to say it differently, if you were to set out to provoke your children to anger, how might you do that? Or to solidify the ideal, let's just call this, this part of the sermon, how to exasperate your children. You ready? I'm going to teach you how to exasperate your children, just so you can identify it when you see it. And by the way, uh, most of these are scriptural, but not all of them are direct commands from scripture. But I think sound wisdom, and we could add at least another 10 to this 10. So if you want to exasperate your children, here's 10 ways. Number one, habitually draw their attention to their failures. Intentionally draw attention to their failures. In other words, never say an encouraging word. Never compliment or give hearty, a hearty attaboy or way to go or I'm so proud of you. Make sure he knows that you never think he's good enough. He never works hard enough or he's dumb. Whenever he steps out of bounds, even a little bit, blow the proverbial whistle of an umpire and do it as loud as you can. Make a scene. Eventually, you'll be tempted to lash, he will be tempted to lash back. And you will find yourself face to face with an angry young man or an angry young woman. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no unwholesome word Proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. You know what edification means? Edification means to build up. This is exactly the opposite of what we're doing when we habitually draw attention to their failures. But only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. So if you want to exasperate your children, habitually draw attention to their failures. Secondly, avoid addressing the issues of their heart. For Samuel 3, 11 through 13, the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears, both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that day I will carry out against Eli, who is the head priest. I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For, it's a purpose statement, for I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Many parents have the problem of rebuking everything they see. Other parents never address sin at all. You want to exasperate your child, be a deadbeat dad when it comes to identifying the issues of the heart. Just ignore your children's sin. Never question their actions. Never bring God's word to bear on their, their sin. And by the way, the, the Proverbs give us a lot of instruction on how to do this. 
Eventually, the world of such children will come crashing in on them, and they will have only themselves and you to blame. Number three, if you want to exasperate your children, be excessively controlling and rigid in your leadership. Smother your child with rules that are overly restrictive in every area of their lives. Never trust them to make the right decision. Never give them the freedom to fail. I'm speaking primarily, obviously, of older children, teenagers. It's true that children need careful guidance, but they, they are individual human beings who need to learn to live on their own before the Lord. Their will should be guided and shaped, but not overly controlled. <clears throat> Some parents want to control everything about their child's life. Don't eat that. Eat this. Don't go there. Come here. Don't make your bed like that. Don't drive your car like that. Don't, 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 don't. And inside, the kid is like, God, yeah. I'm going to scream. It's so important. Their will should be guided, not overly controlled. Otherwise, they'll be tempted to break free from your God-ordained authority so they can breathe on their own. Number four, if you want to provoke your children, let your children rule the home. This is the opposite. Just let them rule. Make the child the focus of every facet of your life. See to it that every desire is met and every whim fulfilled, every tantrum pacified. You know, I remember even I was... Uh, too young for this, when the book came out by Dr. Spock. And one of his primary premises was never tell your children no. And then like 50-some years later, just before he died, he, he put out an article that said, I was wrong. We're like, good night, you killed a generation of people. I was wrong. And we could have told you that. We did tell you that. The word of God has told us all along. We used to have some Chinese friends back when we had an international student ministry. They came from uh, their home country in China. They were coupled, uh, like all couples in China, were encouraged to only have one child. You're familiar with the one-child policy. And preferably, you would have a boy. And if you didn't have a boy, then do whatever you feel is right. And, but when they do have a child, and it's a boy, uh, this Chinese couple affectionately told us that they called this boy the little emperor because the entire focus of the home turns to fulfilling the whims of this little boy. Eventually, however, parents discover that such a lifestyle is unsustainable. And sooner or later... I mean, your friends don't want to come over to your house. Nobody wants to ride an airplane with you. You show me a child who is undisciplined, I'll show you an unhappy, unhappy home. You've got to tell your child no. And if you, don't, if you don't learn to do that early, one day you'll be faced with an angry young boy or girl who never learned to be content with what he has and what he doesn't have. Proverbs 29.15 is telling. Listen to this. Proverbs 29.15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but 
The child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So remember, the marriage relationship is the only permanent relationship. One day that child will leave, we hope. We we plan to stay with our mates until death. We plan for our children to leave just as soon as they are able. You're not training them to leave if you give them everything they want, because when they go out on their own, it will not be that way. If you want to scandalize your child or exasperate your child, number five, model sinful anger when you don't get what you want. Whenever your child disobeys, yell and scream at him. Slam doors, punch walls, break things. I mean, really let your temper fly. This will teach your child that the best strategy for solving problems is to intimidate others until you win. Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. This is interesting if you apply it to children because they're trapped. They're in a situation where they've got an angry dad or an angry mom and there's no getting away from that and so they learn their ways. Train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So don't be shocked when your kids grow up and they've taken on the same sins that you had. There aren't many parents who don't get tempted to yell at their kids from time to time. But frequently, frequent anger, if it's happening a lot, angry words become a snare to them. If you want to exasperate your children, number six, show favoritism to certain children. This would be appropriate or, or especially pointed if you have a blended family, and we don't have time to go into that. But it's so easy to lift up your own biological children over the non-biological children. Don't show favoritism to a certain child or children. In Genesis, we read a story about how Isaac favored his son Esau, while his wife, Rebekah, preferred Jacob, also their son. Talk about creating an environment of exasperation in the home. I mean, that exasperation exists to this day between the Arabs and the Jews. Maybe one of your children is an athlete and the other is an artist. Give all your attention to one over the other and you are sure to tempt both children to sin. One will struggle with pride and the other with resentment. And they will hate each other with an unholy anger. Comparing one child to another, especially in the child's presence, can be devastating to the one who is less talented or less favored. Parents, don't do that. That is a sure recipe for exasperation. Number seven, if you want to exasperate your children, never ask forgiveness or admit that you, parent, are wrong. Jesus said in Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if you're... Listen carefully. This is another one of these texts that doesn't directly speak to parenting, but it applies. Jesus said, Matthew 5.23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar 
And there remember that your brother, insert your child, has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, let me just make this updated. If you are sitting in church and you see the offering plate coming your way, and you remember that you had caused an offense with one of your children and have not yet dealt with it, God wants you to get up, take your son or daughter outside somewhere, go sit in the car, go down to Starbucks, it's not a holy place, but (laughs) take them somewhere where you can sit quietly. Because listen, if you are unwilling to own your sin to the people you sin against, then you shouldn't come to church. So let me read the text again. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother or your child has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. He's not saying, don't come to church because you're a sinner. He's saying, deal with the sin. Beloved, this is application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just about you getting saved forever and living on the golden streets of heaven. This applies in the nasty now and now. Not the, just the sweet by and by. Boy, that's an old song. It applies now. The gospel applies now to anyone you sin against. There ought to be in your home and in this church frequently people asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness. People have asked me many, many times, does your church practice church discipline? And I say, yep. At some level, it's happening every week. And sometimes, often, it happens with me. Because you know know what's true about your pastor? He's a sinner. And you know what sinners do, right? We've gone over this. Sinners sin. And if I sin against one of my kids, they have the responsibility to address it carefully, respectfully. If you you sin against your spouse, it doesn't matter. Well, I shouldn't say that. It does matter. If you are the leader of the home, if you buy this idea that the leader is never wrong and you are wrong frequently, then everybody in your home is going to catch on to that. And the hypocrisy of it will shine forth and it will exasperate your children. How many boys and girls grow up in homes where they never hear mom or dad confess with broken, healing tears that they were wrong. Never admit to having sin. Never ask for forgiveness for causing an offense. Nothing can cause exasperation in a relationship like the unwillingness of one party to ever admit that they were wrong. Few things have the power to destroy open communication like a refusal to own one's sin. It's really nothing but pride and rebellion on our parts, or it may be a sign of of deep unbelief. To refuse to admit what God says 
about our sinful words and actions and attitudes. Our kids pick up on that more quickly than we think. We become hypocrites in their eyes, and they become exasperated because of it. If you want to exasperate your kids, number eight, fail to listen to your children or accept a respectful appeal. Ephesians 6.1 commands, as I said before, children to honor their parents, to obey them in all things. But how does a child honor their parents when, when the parents bring down upon them an unjust or ill-informed decision or judgment? What's a child to do? When that happens to you, how do you feel? You feel like, I want justice. I want justice. I want to make an appeal. Do I have the right to appeal? Our children need to be given the freedom to make a respectful appeal. If after we have given an instruction or a verdict, they have valuable information or a reasonable alternative we have not considered, we should listen. Remember, 10,000 times as we, after we learned these things when our kids were young, uh, we learned that one of the surest ways to keep their heart was before we spanked them, can I say spank still? Um, we would say, okay, so we've identified the fact that you were told to do something and you didn't do it. Before I spank you, would you like to make an appeal? And they would say, yeah, Dad, you know, you told me to go make my bed and clean my room, but just before that, Mom told me to take the trash out. Oh, I didn't know that. It's better to find that out before you spank them or discipline them in some way. We make that mistake, and it's harmful. It's harmful. Proverbs 18 13 says, he who gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame. And verse 17 says, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. The home is not supposed to be a democracy, but neither is it to be a tyrannical dictatorship. Christian kids should, could know, should know that their parents are willing to listen to their thoughts, their ideas, their suggestions. And that from time to time, mom and dad will reverse a decision when more information is respectfully brought to bear. You want to exasperate your children, never let them make an appeal on their own behalf. Soon they'll be tempted with an unholy discouragement and anger. Number nine, you want to exasperate your children, withhold parental affection and delight in who they are. Sometimes parents only delight in their kids when they do something extraordinary. But listen, when you enjoy being with someone, there are ways that you consistently act. When you enjoy being with another person, you express that joy in words and appropriate displays of affection. You hug them and tell them that you love them. You value their opinions. You anticipate their thoughts and their contributions. And you know, on the other hand, what it's like when someone doesn't like you. And they keep their distance. They say as little as possible to you. They have no interest in your thoughts, your ideas, your concerns. You get the distinct impression that you're worthless in their eyes. And I'm saying, too many of us do that with our kids. 
Too many of us do that with our kids. I've known um, people in the past that I've spent significant time with when, whenever they would answer the phone, it was joy and happiness, joy and happiness, joy, so glad to hear you. Oh, it's so wonderful. Oh, here's a verse for you. Oh, and then when their son or daughter would call, it would, it would be like, what do you want? That's not good. If you want to exasperate your children, number 10, remain silent about Jesus and the glory of his gospel and the glory of his being and the glory of his work. Delighting in your kids begins with delighting in the Lord. And if you delight in the Lord, your kids will hear you rejoice in him at home and when you rise up in the morning, and when you walk by the way, and when you lay down, and when you, when you do anything with your children, as Moses suggests in Deuteronomy 6, if you delight in the Lord, you express wonder and worship over every sunset, every thunderstorm. You experience appreciation. You express appreciation and delight for the faithful preaching of God's word. You remind one another when sin occurs that this is why Jesus came to die. By the way, that's a great way to talk to your kids about the gospel when you're disciplining. This is why Jesus came to die. You don't have to live like this. We don't have to do this all the time. There's a way of escape, and God has given it to you in Jesus. Oh, mom and dad, if you want to exasperate your children, take them to church, give them a Bible but never personally delight in the Lord before their eyes. It won't take long. It won't take long before they peg you for the hypocrite that you are, and you will have failed to make your ambition to be personally pleasing to the Lord in your parenting. Now someone is thinking right now, isn't there some positive exhortation here? Isn't there a word of encouragement? Well, sure there is. For every command, there's a promise. And so you see, the second imperative, the first one was do not provoke. The second one is in Ephesians 6, 4, the parallel passage. And here's the, the, um, the imperative, the command. Bring them up in the nature, nurture, I mean, or instruction of the Lord. Well, how do you do that? How do we do that? Well, there's an awful lot of scriptures I haven't touched on. But maybe the easiest way is just to throw this sermon into reverse. Number 10. You want to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Speak often to your kids about the glory of Christ and his gospel. Let them see you delighting in him. Number two, wrap your kids with a nurturing blanket of affection and delight for who they are rather than what they can do. Listen, number three, or number eight, I'm going backwards. Listen to your children's concerns. Listen from the heart and make sure that you know that they have the right to, be, to make a respectful appeal. Number seven, humbly ask forgiveness every time you sin against your children or your child individually. Number six, be careful not to lift one child or children above the others, even if yours is a blended family. 
Number five, ex- exercise self-control rather than sinful anger when things don't go your way. Number four, be a firm but fair disciplinarian. Don't let your child rule the home. Number three, make sure your kids know the difference between house rules and the law of God. There's a difference. When it comes to household rules, be appropriately flexible, especially with your older kids. Number two, address their heart and not merely their behavior. Teach them that sin and righteousness are always matters of the heart. And number one, express love, acceptance, and delight in them, especially when they fail. And as I said, we could, we could pile on here. When you're reading the book of Proverbs, just listen, read it with an open heart. Every time you open the scriptures... Think, Lord, how does this apply to me as a husband or you as as a wife or a parent or even you children? It applies to all of you as well. Well, as you can see, there are many ways to exasperate our children, to discourage them and provoke them to anger. And as believing parents, we need to be aware of the danger and keep a vigilant eye on how we can encourage them in the Lord instead now, let me be clear about one more thing. And I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but it's so important. There isn't a parent in this room who is not keenly aware of his or her failings as a parent. If you're not sensitive to them, then you're not thinking about it well enough. We all blow it more often than we like to admit, but God God is faithful. And if we approach our assignment with a humble heart and a willingness to own our shortcomings and failures, I think you'll find that our children are almost as gracious with us as is the Lord. I'm always surprised at how quickly my children grant their dad repentance. I'm, I'm always amazed at how quickly my wife forgives me when I sin. You should know as well that even if you are faithful, if you're faithful to bring up your children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord, that's no guarantee that they will trust in Christ or live in fellowship with him. And let me, let me just make this clear. If they reject Christ after all of that, it's not your fault. They will stand before God It is God's work in them. God has to do that work in them. Your responsibility is to be faithful to them and to be faithful to the Lord. Let me just read one short paragraph here at the end. A few years ago, I read this from one of my heroes of the faith, and I'll tell you who it is at the end. It's a Christian dad, and he writes this. My family's all grown up now, and the kids are all gone. But if I, had to do, if I had to do it all over again, this is what I would do. I would love my wife more in front of my children. I would laugh with my children more at our mistakes and our joys. I would listen more, even to the littlest child. I would be more honest about my own weaknesses 
never pretending perfection. I would pray differently for my family. Instead of focusing on them, I'd focus more on me. I would do more things together with my children. I would encourage them more and bestow more praise. I would pay more attention to little things like deeds and words and thoughtfulness. And then finally, if I had to do it all over again, I would share God more intimately with my family. Every ordinary thing that happened in every ordinary day, I would use to direct them toward God. It's written by John MacArthur. Parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, but bring them up in the nurture and the instruction of the Lord. May God give us the grace to do so for his glory and for our own great joy. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you that you have not left us to grope for truth, to try to figure out how to make life work. But you have revealed yourself and everything we need to know to live in a manner that's pleasing to you. We understand that nothing that we do is perfect or can produce perfection. But, oh, Lord, our eyes are on you, and our hope is in you. And so, Father, I pray that you would protect parents from the evil one. I pray, Father, that you would protect them from the impulses of their flesh. I pray that you'd protect them from withdrawing from their children, or saying things that cause their children to withdraw. Oh, Father, I pray that you would make us more like Jesus, who loved children and would never forbid them from coming to him. Lord, there's so much to learn. Even as grandparents, there is so much to learn about how to minister to children. Give us the grace to learn it, Father, for the glory of Jesus and for our own joy, we pray.